0: The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. So we turn our attention now to Genesis. Long portion of scripture again, Genesis 46 through 49. Some of you have accused me. You're not completely wrong. Pastor, you're moving fast so you can get done before you go on sabbatical. Okay, partly so, but hear me. What I want you to notice is I'm not just randomly picking up at one place and stopping at another. Genesis is a narrative, it's a story. So I'm stopping and starting in places where the story naturally breaks and where that portion of the story is pointing you in a very particular bre- uh, direction. So I'm gonna go ahead and tell you what it is from, when we get started. Here's what you can see in 46 to 49 is that the Lord God faithfully brings to pass his promises. The Lord God faithfully brings to pass what he promises. Let me just give you an example of that before we go any further. You've already witnessed it. Did Jesus promise that he would build his church? Did Jesus promise if we pray to the Lord of the harvest, he'd send workers into the harvest field? You just witnessed it. You just witnessed and the explanation the Carol Ryan scholarship of God providing in and through this local church to build his church and to send workers in the harvest field. God keeps his promises. Now, what you are going to see in the immediate context here of chapter 46 through 49 is God keeping his promises to Jacob. Joseph has already stated in chapter 45 to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So what God was doing in his life was not the result of evil his brothers had dealt him. It was God's big plan to protect Israel and to save a people for the seed. Joseph tells his brothers to go get his father and the family is about to leave Egypt when we, for Egypt when we pick up in chapter 46. And what we want to see is that the Lord God blesses Israel's journey to Egypt. It starts in 46 verse 1-4 through as Israel, which is Jacob's covenant name, worships and then God speaks. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also will bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now I don't know if you heard it or not but in what God says to Jacob is he making a promise to Jacob here by the way? Is he? Yes. He's making promises, but these promises are building off of promises God's already made. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. God here speaks to Abram. Tells him to leave his country and his kindred and his house to a land that he will show him. And then he says in verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here you say, Here God saying to Jacob, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. Now turn to chapter 15. This is God again speaking to Abraham, clarifying building on his covenant promise to Abraham. And it says in verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now you come back to chapter 46 and you see this. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now what you got to assume here is that Jacob's heard the story of what God told Abraham. and God says here, Abraham, don't be afraid because I myself will go down to Egypt with you and I will bring you up again. God here is promising not only a specific promise to Jacob, God is making a promise to his people. This led Bodie Balcom to say, quote, the brief message from the Lord is pregnant with meaning. There's no way for Jacob to know the magnitude of his journey. God does not reiterate to him about the hundred years of oppression and bondage. He simply tells Jacob what matters most. I am God I am in control. You can trust me. I will bring to pass what I have promised you. That is more than enough for Jacob. So what you find in verse five is Jacob set out. He left. He makes his journey down to Egypt. Now, as you're reading through this text, you're going to find out that this man is 130 years old. That's no spring chicken to make a big journey. His his journey reminds us that we are never at an age where we no longer have to trust God. That we never get to a point in our life where God's still not teaching us or that there are obstacles still for us to overcome or fears for us to face. There are journeys yet before us. You see, Serving and trusting God is not a young man's game where those of us who are older among us just sit on the sidelines and reminisce about the good old days and cheer on the young people. No, following Jesus is a full participation sport until the very end of your life. We trust him and we follow him. And that's what you see Jacob doing here. Now he leaves, He takes everything with him and all of his family. And what's recorded here for you in chapter 46 is a census of everybody who's going with him. And it's summed up verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 people at this point make up Israel. So here's what you got to think. The people in this section right here, at this point in history, when you're reading about Israel, at this point in history is how many there are. This is not this big, massive multitude. They are not yet a, quote, great nation. They are a small band of people who have now been uprooted and are leaving to go to a different land now what transpires when they get there the first thing recorded is jacob and joseph's uh, reunion now remember as you read verses 28 to 34 and it talks about joseph falling on the neck of his father and jacob and joseph as they weep and israel come into this conclusion now let me die since i have seen your face and know that you are still alive see Jacob had lived for this moment. He had longed for this moment to see his son who the last time he saw him, he was sending him off to check on his brothers. Now decades have passed and this is the first time they meet and it is an emotional time together. At the very end of chapter 46, notice this detail. Joseph is instructing Jacob and his brothers that when they get there, and Pharaoh asked, what is your occupation? You say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is abomination to Egyptians. Now, they were shepherds, and what's going to happen is it's going to work to their favor because Egyptians hated shepherds. They couldn't live in town, if you will, with all the Egyptians. They had to be separated off by themselves. So Joseph, who is in charge, suggests that they dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, if you study Egypt, if you ever watch anything about the Nile River, it's gonna end up in the Nile Delta, this lush place where the water keeps everything alive. Well, that's Goshen. That's where the people of Israel end up in the most prime land, in the only place that was still flourishing in the midst of the famine. Now, as you work through chapter 47, I'm reading verse 13. There was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe. Now, let's put yourself in the context because you don't think like this. Most of you, I don't, I don't even know if we still have a farmer who's a member of Parkwood. Most of you don't think in farming. So these people made their their living. They lived, their livelihood came from the land. These were agrarian people, farmers. A famine comes, the land is no longer producing. So now you don't have what? Food. There's no McDonald's. There's no credit card. No food. So when you run out of food... You're gonna use your money. Now, where'd your money come from? How'd you get money as a farmer? You sold your what? You sold your crops. Now we got a double problem here. You got people who are now taking their money to go buy food, but they're not replenishing their food because there are no longer any crops. So you run out of money and you run out of food, so you sell your livestock. This I'm just walking you through the text here. They then sell their livestock. Now who's keeping the livestock? Israel. So the livestock gets sold. Israel's in charge of the livestock, all right? They run out of livestock, so now they have no money. They have no crops, have no livestock to trade for food. What do they still have? They're farmers. What do they have? Land. So then they sell their land to Pharaoh in exchange for food. The the, the famine does not let up. It continues you got one thing left. You know what it is? It's yourself. Things become so dire in Egypt that people sell themselves into slavery in exchange for food. Now, you say, well, that explains how Israel becomes slaves. No, it doesn't. Because during the famine, that's not when they become slaves. And they, the reason we know that is this Verse that ought to jump off the page, and if it doesn't, underline it. Thus, Israel, it's verse 27, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Everything else is declining, everybody else is suffering, but you got this little group of shepherds up there in Goshen who are multiplying and experiencing a fruitful time. Only God can do this now you come to this moment where they're prospering and the scripture records in verse 28 Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years so the famine's now passed seven years of the famine now they're outside of the famine and Jacob's still there tells us the year of his life were 147 years so as it drew near from the time that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, and this is a sign of agreement, and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in the burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said, and he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, this brings to my mind uh, uh, some of you know Dr. Henry Thomason. He's now a retired physician. Dr. Thomason uh, took care of people here in the Gastonia area for his whole uh, medical career. Um, he's from this area, and when his father died, I guess it's been 10 or 15 years ago now. Uh, his dad had made the boys make a promise. Now, when I die, you boys are going to bury me. Now, in your mind, you're thinking that means they make sure you go down to Gas Memorial Park, you get a plot, and you make, make sure. No. Mr. Thomas and Mean meant literally that when everything's over, you boys let my body down in the grave and you physically cover me up. I want you boys to make sure that I was buried in the spot that they said that I was going to be buried. It is funny to hear Dr. Thompson tell the story, him and his brothers, because they were not spring chickens at this moment, standing there burying his dad, a promise that they were called to keep and that they kept. Now, next week, you're going to see that promise fulfilled in a very extreme way as Jacob is buried. In the meantime, what you have in chapters 48 and 49 are the blessing of Jacob's sons. It starts with the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now let me just, I'm, again, summarizing fairly rapidly here. Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons, the two sons of Joseph. We're told In verse 3, that Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he's restating the promise that God has given to him. And here's what's going to happen. Jacob is going to act on that promise with Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by, my name, by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, technically, this is true, Jacob is their what? Grandfather. But here's what he's saying. These are now my sons. At this moment, he adopts the boys. Ephraim and Manasseh become a part of the sons of Jacob. Now this is significant. I have time to fully explain it. This is very significant as you see the history of Israel beginning to play out. What he continues to do now is to offer a blessing to the boys it's a double blessing. He blesses Joseph and the boys. In other words, Joseph gets a double blessing. Read verse 15. This is the blessing of Joseph. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God to whom has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. As he offers this blessing, the boys are brought to him. Jacob extends his hands to these two boys, twin boys. His right hand should have gone on which child? The older, who is Manasseh, because that's the the sign of of the one who is the firstborn. Left hand should have gone on Ephraim, the younger When the boys are brought to them, Jacob crosses his hands. Now Joseph rebukes him and says, no, 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 don't do that. Manasseh is the older. And Jacob says, no, this is the way it's to be. And he blesses Ephraim as the younger. And we see this playing out over and over again in the book of Genesis as, as God steps outside of the order of the firstborn and does what only by his grace that he would do in blessing the younger. Summed up in in verse twenty, but you Israel were pronounced blessings, saying, "God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh." Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter eleven, and while you're turning, I want you to listen to this quote: Out of Jacob's long career. The writer to the Hebrews selects the incident in this section as his greatest act of faith, namely his reaching out to the future of the promise in the face of death as he blessed the younger over the older. There is an irony in the fact that this incident is comparable to the situation in which he had received the blessing over his older brother. Once more, the blessing was given to the younger, but this time there's no deception or bitterness involved. This time... The blessing was given openly in accord with God's plan. Thus, the writer of Hebrews, in the great record of faith, writes. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You see, friends, Jacob believed that God's promises were certain to him. They were certain not only in his life, they were certain even after his death. So he worshiped God and he proves his faith here, demanding to be buried in the land of promise, believing God's sovereign grace is blessing and his blessing is contrary to human expectations. And he proves this by blessing Ephraim over the older Manasseh. Then he continues in chapter 49. In chapter 49, he blesses all of his 12 sons. Now, if you read it, it doesn't sound like a blessing to many of them. It's a statement of truth. He gathers them all together. So you got this scene of this, this man who's at the end of his life and gathering his sons to him and he speaks individually to them. Now, I don't have time to break all this down to you, but let me just explain a few things. Since Reuben defiled his father's bed and did not observe his father's sacred right, his family will have no chance of birthright. This is clearly shown in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch... His birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Simeon and Levi, who are the second and third born, will not replace Reuben in leadership of the nation because they were men of anarchy and not justice. Simeon is swallowed up in the tribe of Judah and Levi, who receives an honorable dispersion, is dispersed throughout the tribes as the priestly tribe. If you read closely, you notice that two sons come to the forefront, just as it has as we've worked through from chapters 37 to the end of the book. It is Joseph and Judah who come forward. Joseph who received the double portion so that Ephraim and Manasseh would have equal shares with the other sons, and then out of the promises given to Abraham, the kingship is reserved for Judah. Judah. Let's read Joseph's, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of, the, of him who was set apart from his brothers. And just one quick reading of that. What word jumped off at you? Did you notice? one word. It was repeated over and over again. Blessing. Who gave the blessing? God. Joseph's life all points you to the Lord God. It points you to what God did, how God supplied and protected, that God was his shepherd, that he was the stone of Israel, the one who was stable and unchanging, that God of your father he is the almighty the one who is able to bless and you look at the circumstances and everything that happened in Joseph's life and what is continuing to happen as you come to this moment it can only be explained by almighty God working then you look at Judah verse 8 Judah your brother shall praise you his mother knew how to name him didn't she Because Judah meant praise. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. When When they camp in Leviticus, what tribes on the outer reaches to protect the people? Anybody know? It's Judah. Your hand shall... Be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son said, him before you. Judah's a lions, club, lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute has come to him and to him... To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. I'll just say this. You can't understand Revelation without this right here. what God's saying about Judah and what he's gonna do as things are brought to pass at the end, but time fails me from being able to get into that. I just want you to see two things. That Judah, the image of the lion is brought forth and the picture of the scepter. The scepter is what a king would hold in his hand. So the lion's power is seen in the stature and the strength Of Judah, and those are to come, and the scepter carries with it the idea of a powerful office. So, Judah's kingly descendants are coming, and the greatest of these descendants is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Messiah who will spring from the tribe of Judah. So, as I take all of this and I look at it, and really, this is looking at a big sweep of Genesis, and then we're gonna sweep beyond Genesis and ask how does this point us to the gospel to ask the so what question. I come back to the very first sentence that came out of my mouth as I began the sermon. The Lord God faithfully brings to pass what he promises. So when I look at this text, I see that God has brought to pass what he promises. The book ends. He started in chapter 46 and he says to, to Jacob, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid. I'll go down to, Egypt, to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Now, it's been all over the text that we've already been reading. And I just want you to notice with me, there's a theme that continues through all these texts. It's as plain as the nose on your face. Don't make it hard. I'm not just not some kind of secret clue in the Bible. I just want you to see the theme and I'll try to clear it up at the end. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb to the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, but yet not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burn. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. At this point, they're slaves. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the places of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. If you read through the rest of the book of Exodus, here's what you see. God does exactly what he promises. And he releases his people from the most powerful nation on the earth. People with no weapons, no army. God sets them free. He takes them into the land, which is occupied by people. After Moses' death, he promises to Joshua to take the land and the people take the land. Joshua comes to the end of his life and says, now, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Will you serve God? The book of Judges says the answer to that question was no. They did what is right in their own eyes and Israel began to descend into sin. They wanted a king, so God gave them what they wanted and they got Saul and that didn't work out too good. God had made a promise to Judah. The scepter would come from him. And you come to 2 Samuel chapter seven and God unfolds the story just a little bit more for us in some very specific ways. Now I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over the people of Israel. God speaking to David. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth... And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all, my, all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of iron, with the stripes of his sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now here's the deal. You start flipping pages and you see God raises up Solomon. What does Solomon build? The temple. And then Solomon's sons right away lead to division. And the people of God are separated into two kingdoms, and they descend worse into sin than they ever have before. And God sends foreign invaders who attack the people of Israel and destroy the temple. And take the people into exile. And it appears if God has forgotten his people. It appears if the promises were false. A group of people from the east show up in Jerusalem. They come to Herod, a pagan king, and they say, We've, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. Herod's shocked and upset by this, so much so he kills all the babies in Israel. But he says, How do you know this? (laughs) And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, O you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the leaders of rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Who will shepherd my people, Israel? Parallel to that, Luke records that out on the hillside outside of Bethlehem, it still looks like this today. Angels appeared to who? Shepherds. And they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God, as he promised, protected his life until the moment when Jesus repeated over and over again that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and he will be betrayed and he will face a trial and he will be beaten and he will be crucified and on the third day he will raise again that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the Lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sin of the world, hung on the cross and there in our place, took the sin that we committed and the sin that we rebelled against God, and he took the wrath of God on our behalf and suffered and died in our place. And three days later, because because he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Three days later, he rose again in power. And he is seated at the right hand of the father. And one day... He shall return. And when he returns, he will gather his people unto himself, and we will gather at the very throne of God, and we will worship this Christ forever and forever. And here's what the great day of Revelation is going to look like. This is John speaking. A scroll is presented, and nobody can open the scroll and John begins to weep because nobody can open it. And it says in verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. That's a reference to the cross and the resurrection has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures among the elders, I saw what? A lamb. And they fell down before the lamb, verse eight. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, I hope you saw the theme The theme is shepherds and sheep. We Americans we like power, and if we're not careful, we can get skewed and turn Christianity into something that's not. And hear me, Jesus is the King of Kings, and one day they're going to be smack down. He's going to come and he's going to set it all right but that's not how he carries his kingdom out. He carries his kingdom out with a kingdom of priests, with despised shepherds, weak people who show weakness before the world, but also the power and the promise of God on their life. We are representatives of King Jesus, the Lamb of God. So we don't mix up things of the world and stir them up in our faith and make that into some new brand of Christianity. No, friends, here's how we live we live as people who believe that God has brought his promise to pass that he has fulfilled his promise in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we live and believe as people who believe that God's going to bring his promise to pass. So what does that mean? It means that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It means when you read through Hebrews 11, you saw people who believed the promise of God and they acted they acted. Now, here's, here's what breaks my heart, so let's just get straight with it. Here's what breaks my heart. You want to promise today that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. In other words, you want me to repackage the American dream and drop that on you. That's not what God promises. Here's what God promises. God promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. God promises that he will give you everything that you need for life and for godliness. God promises that he goes to prepare a place for you. Yesterday, I gathered at my grandmother's bed with this thought, this could very well and may well be the last time I talked to her. And basically, my grandmother said this as we gathered there, I can die now. See my family? I'm ready to go. I know that Jesus has prepared a place for me. <laughs> In the second service, my dad texted me and said, she's rebounded, she's going home tomorrow. That's what... I- that's what tough old mountain girls do it's not her time but I know this yesterday looking that little gnarled up body those lungs filled up with pneumonia one day she's gonna pass and so am I but I saw faith on that bed yesterday. In fact, some of the greatest moments of me seeing faith as a believer has been at the bedside of saints who were believing the promise of God. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, are you living as if you believe that God has brought his promises to pass? And that he will bring his promises to pass. Let's pray. Lord, your word is unlike anything else. This is your holy word. It is a masterful story that we will never fully unlock everything that is here. But as intricate as it is, it is so simple. It points to you, the faithful covenantal God who keeps his promises and who has fulfilled those promises in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray now that we would fall at your feet as we will in heaven and we will worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.